Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. One of my predecessors at Shades Crest, Dr. James Ock Moody, served a very distinguished tenure at Shades Crest, and upon his retirement, a fund was established here at Sanford for the purpose of speaking to leadership issues connected to the local church. Today, it is our privilege to welcome to Sanford uh, Dr. Matt Cook, who is our 2017 Alt Moody Lecturer. Dr. Cook is a 93 graduate here of Sanford, also receiving degrees uh, at Baylor University. And having served in several capacities uh, in different states, he is now the senior pastor at the First Baptist Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's also served as past moderator of the Cooperative Baptist uh, Fellowship and speaks in churches and universities around the nation. So please give a very warm welcome to Matt Cook. Before I um, start, I thought it might also be appropriate. The man whose this lectureship was named after is also present with us this morning. We sang a song, Be Thou My Vision, that has been around for a long time. And uh, I love to hear college students sing timeless songs because it reminds me that, that God's wisdom spans the generations. But as great as it is to sing a song that spans the generations, I think it's even better to celebrate a life that has spanned the generations. And so, Dr. Achmedi, if you don't mind raising your hand or standing and let us recognize you as well, please, this morning. Thank you. I'm honored to be here and to participate in this event, which carries his name. His son Jimbo and I went to college together, and I'm going to spare you those stories for his benefit and mine. Um, if you would please listen to, to these words from the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? As they stopped walking and looked discouraged, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these past two days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And now our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We were hoping he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since this stuff happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb where Jesus was laid, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. 
He said to them, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts. All the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him, stay with us. It's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I want to tell you another story. It's an old story of two little boys that were known in a small town for being troublemakers. The reason why they got that reputation is whenever they were around, things would go missing. You know, it didn't start off being that big of a deal. They'd borrow somebody's toy or bike. But, but one day, a, a farmer's tractor went missing and ended up all the way over on the other side of town. Their mom finally had had enough. She had no idea how to control their behavior, and so she called on the preacher. Now, don't do that to your preacher. Don't make the pastor the bad guy, but that's what she did. She asked the pastor if, if he could put the fear of God in them. So he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to send them one at a time to come see me at the church. They only lived a few blocks away, and so the oldest boy came, and he came into the pastor's office. And the pastor, in order to kind of you know, intimidate him a little bit, got behind his desk, and he, and he stood up behind him, and he looked at the little boy, and he said, young man, tell me this, where is God. The little boy didn't answer. He just kind of looked scared. Thinking maybe he was getting through to him, he asked the question again, young man, this is what I want to know. Can you tell me where is God? And at that point, the little boy got up and he bolted out of the office and he ran down the hall and out the door and the few blocks to his house and he ran inside to his bedroom and he went flying into his closet and he closed his doors and his younger brother heard him come in and he could hear him kind of shaking and trembling. And so he went in there and he said, what happened? And he said, you're never going to believe it. God is missing and they think we took him. <laughs> you ever had a hard time spotting God? Stop and think about it for just a second. Has there ever been a time in your life where God maybe wasn't quite as apparent to you as you would like for him to be? Now, God's not missing, but sometimes, sometimes we are kept from recognizing him. In a quiet neighborhood in northeast Dallas, there is an aging church. The, the, uh, the average attendance on a good Sunday is about 60 people who will gather for worship clutching programs handed out by a man who is 99 years old, who is the usher. The average age of the membership of the church is 83 years old. Their pastor is a relative spring chicken by comparison at the sprightly young age of 74. Gaston Oaks Baptist Church is the second oldest church in the city of Dallas. Originally known as Gaston Avenue Baptist Church, Gaston Avenue was a megachurch before the term was even invented. On the Sunday after World War II came to an end, there were nearly 2,000 people in worship. Every seat was full, and so they immediately launched a plan to build a larger sanctuary. A few years later, it was completed. It seated 
almost 3,500 people. And on that day, when it was dedicated, every seat was full and they had to turn away 1,000 people. The church grew to become one of the largest churches in the United States. Furthermore, Gasson was once known as the mother church of missionaries, as during the time more Baptist missionaries traced their calling to Gaston Avenue than any other church in the country. And yet, like a lot of predominantly white churches in urban areas in the late 20th century, Gaston began to struggle numerically. By the late 1980s, they averaged less than 500 people, and so they asked a question that a lot of aging congregations ask, should we move? an average age of about 65 years, the church worried about its future. And so 1990, they decided that's what they were going to do. They moved north. They left behind this huge campus with a majestic sanctuary for a renovated office building. And they moved because they were trusting that moving would give them a hope and a future. And yet, years later, all that hope hadn't amounted to very much. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the, the story of Gaston Avenue Baptist Church that became Gaston Oaks Baptist Church when it moved is a more common story than you might realize. Not every church is as large as Gaston once was, but almost 90% of the churches in the United States were once larger than they are now. Did you know that? 90%. And of the remaining 10% of churches in the United States which are growing, 90% of those churches are only growing because they are pulling in Christians from the churches that are declining. Sociologists have taken to calling this trend the great decline. The graph you see on the screen represents overall religiosity in the United States. And as you can see, for nearly 60 years, the trends have been going down. This graph takes into account five different factors. One, the, the percentage of people in the United States who identify themselves as religious. Two, church attendance, people who regularly make attendance of religious services part of their ongoing lives. Three, church membership, people who regardless of their attendance maintain a connection with a particular congregation for the significance of religion in the personal life, and five, religious relevance, the, the significance people believe that religion has, not just for them personally, but for addressing the needs and challenges of society in the present. And since 19, the mid-1950s, all of those factors have been in freefall. But over the past 20 years, the, the pace of decline... In American religiosity has increased, as you can see in each one of the slides on the screen. The pace has picked up. Let me go back to one. A decline in religious identity, people who identify themselves as such, a decline in church attendance, a decline in membership, a decline in the value that people have in their own individual lives, and a decline of religion's relevance for today. All these numbers are going down. An even more disquieting trend can be seen in the number of Americans who identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated. In 1990, and I don't know if you can, if you can see up here, but down at the bottom is the line that I'm paying attention to. In, in, in 1990, only 5% of the population self-identified as religiously unaffiliated, but only 25 years later, that number had risen to a staggering 
of the population, which makes it, by the way, one of the most dramatic shifts in religious adherence in the history of the United States and perhaps in the history of Christianity itself. It's a huge, huge shift. Now, there are still many people in that category who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. They believe in God. They maintain a high degree of morality. But what does it tell us that a large and still growing percentage of the population has little or no use for the institutional church as it has existed. And I suspect if we had time this morning and I took the opportunity, a bunch of you in this room would probably put yourselves in that same category. Because the largest subset of people who identify themselves in that category are people below the age of 30. What does that say? And that's a it's a pretty daunting picture, maybe even a depressing one. But if that depresses you or frightens you, then what I hope to do this morning is to give you a different way to think about what is taking place around us. And most importantly, to give you a different way to think about what the church's mission is in the midst of all that. What if I told you that not only is the church in America dying... But that's actually good news. Two men walked along a dusty road from the city of Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus on a Passover weekend long ago. If you have read the 24th chapter of Luke before, then you know how the story ends. So maybe it's easy to forget how those two guys must have felt as they were leaving the city. Now, for centuries... People had been placing their hopes in this idea that, that a Messiah was going to come. And he was going to make everything better. That he was going to turn the world upside down. And the deepest longings of their heart, of the children of God in that place and that time, was that they would live to see it happen. And then for a small group of men and women, it happened. Or so they thought. This Jesus of Nazareth who cast out demons and healed the sick, who fed the multitudes and preached with power on the kingdom of God. And Jesus of Nazareth, they started to believe that the long-hoped-for Messiah had come. And that he was finally about to help them carry the mission that God had given them out. A week earlier... He had come riding into town to the shouts of thousands of people. But only a few days later, they watched with horror as he was tried and convicted and then crucified. And so I hope it is not unfair to say that all of the disciples, not just those two on the road to Damascus, were struggling to understand exactly what was going on and how to respond because all their hopes they had placed in Jesus and then he died and then those women come back and say, you're never going to believe what happened. And can you blame them if up, right up until that moment they still were struggling to believe? And Luke tells us that they were walking with Jesus and they were talking with Jesus, but they didn't 
recognize him. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why that's true? Why were they kept from recognizing him? Luke never tells us why. Maybe something mystical was taking place for these two men who had placed their hopes in Jesus not to know him when they saw him, not to know him even when they spent all afternoon walking beside him, discussing all of the things that Jesus wanted them to understand. But I also think it's possible that the reason why they were kept from recognizing him was a lack of imagination. They had been looking for, up until this moment, an ordinary leader. But what God was offering them instead was the crucified and resurrected Christ. No wonder they couldn't spot him. What they needed was a crucified, corrected vision. Death, apparently, changes things. Death changes things. And not just for Jesus, not just for those two men on the road to Emmaus. We are, you and I, right now in the early years of the 21st century, we are, we are in an Emmaus Road experience. If the church is Jesus' body, then maybe, maybe what we are supposed to come to terms with is that the Jesus we know before has died. But as Christians, not only should we not be afraid of that, we should embrace it, we should celebrate it, because Jesus takes death and turns it on its ear. He makes it a tool for his own purposes. Death is now the way that we get to new life. Now stop and think about that for a second. In the context of church, in the context of all of those stats about how all of the things that we had took for granted as Christians in this nation, in this culture for so long, are slowly dying. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it look like? What needs to die in the church for resurrection to occur in the coming years? Let me make three brief recommendations. How many of you... Last week, on Wednesday, took the opportunity to participate in an Ash Wednesday service. Show of hands. You might have seen a few people walking around the city of Birmingham, maybe even walking around the campus with some ash on their forehead. The sign of the cross. This past Sunday, we entered into the 40 days of remembrance of Jesus in the wilderness known as Lent. And when Jesus is out in the wilderness, do you remember what he's tempted with? He's out there for a long time, and we don't know exactly when it happens, but at some point the devil shows up, and Jesus has been out there, and he has been going without food, and he is tempted. Three things. Bread, jumping off the temple, and taking over. Comfort, glory, and power. Jesus was really tempted by each and every one of those things because those things aren't bad things. Those things are good things. And yet he turned them down. 
What might it say to us at the beginning of Lent, where we journey with Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, while Jesus was in the wilderness, he turned down those things cold. I'd like to offer to you that maybe that's what we have to do in the 21st century as a church. First, if we're going to be the church God needs us to be in the coming days, the consumer church must die so that the church's ability to meet people's deep needs might live. Maybe, let me tell you a story. One of my best friends in the world lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He and I went to high school and college together. He's a, he's a deeply religious person. His grandfather was a, was a Baptist preacher. He's grown up all his life in church. We talk about faith matters all the time, and he kind of bounces his ideas off me, and sometimes I bounce my ideas off of him. He's a He's, a, he's an attorney, and so he thinks about these things from a different perspective. And for a number of years, he and his family had been struggling at the church where they were at. Tell me about that. Why is it that you're struggling? Well, you know, the children's programs aren't all that great at our church, and we kind of like for them to be better. Our boys are at an age where we really want them to be blessed. And honestly, my pastor, he, you know... He's kind of boring from time to time. He's kind of long-winded, and I just am not getting fed in the way that I need to get fed. And, and while we used to love the music at our church a few years ago, our minister of music retired, and we've got this new guy in, and he's changing everything up, and we just don't like it very much anymore. So we're going we're gonna to go look for a, a, a different place, a better place. And so he, that, that's what he and his family did for the, for the period of several months. And he would kind of walk through this journey with me of the things he liked about this church and didn't like about it, and the things that he didn't like about this church and the things that he liked. And, and every, single, every single week he would kind of walk through that journey with me of the things that he was looking for in a church. And the more... The more that he talked about it, the more it started to sound like a person that was trying on clothes at the mall. Trying churches on for size. You know, do these, does this church make, my, make, make me look fat? Well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not really like, you know, the music here. I'll try a different one on. I, you know, I like the preaching at this place. I like the programs for my kids at this place. But the question that he never ever asked himself in the process of that. He's my best friend in the world and a deeply spiritual guy. The question he never asked himself is, which one of these churches is going to make me more like Jesus? Because it's really, in the end, it's not about whether you like the music or not. It's not about whether you think the preacher is entertaining. It's not about whether or not they have the kind of coffee or programs or whatever it is that makes a church look attractive in earthly terms if we have defined the church's success by whether the music is awesome, whether the preaching is entertaining, and if they've got great programs that we want to attend, then what we will have is a church filled with people who think that God exists to make them happy. Who have turned God into nothing more than a big vending machine that if they just show up enough, they're going to get what they want out of the church. Rather than a church filled with people who are passionate about building his kingdom. Second, and strongly related to the first kind of death, the impressive church must die so that a mustard seed methodology might live. At least part of the reason why churches have become so market-driven is that we are scared to death of all those trends that I put up on the screen earlier. Scared to death that our churches are going to be smaller and that that we're not going to live up to some worldly standard of success. We've got to be big if we're going to matter. Now, 
When I was in seminary, one of my preaching mentors told me about a game. Now, I don't know if you know this, but your, but your pastor at one time or another has probably played this game. Maybe you've even played it too without realizing it, or at least encouraged him to play it too without even realizing it. Preachers, when they get together, you know, they want to they wanna talk shop, and so they play this game called Since I Came. Well, you know, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Wilmington, and since I came to First Baptist Wilmington, everything is going great. The crowds are up, the music is better, things are more organized, there are people coming in from left and right, we're gaining a reputation in our city. Since I came, our church is as strong as it's ever been. And this game called Since I Came is closely connected to another game called Since I Left. Well, since I left Second Baptist Little Rock a few years ago, things are kind of going down. People aren't quite as happy as they used to be. You know, the preaching's certainly not as good as it used to be. And part of the reason why preachers play that game is because without realizing it, what we've done is we have bought into this idea that if we can't impress one another in a worldly manner, then somehow or another we are failures. When the highest definition for us of doing what God is calling us to do is not numerical success, but faithfulness. And that's not just true for preachers, that's true for all of us in how we think about the church. Many of the church people I know are so filled with anxiety over the fact that their church is smaller than it once was, and 9 out of 10 of them are, but if we define a church's success by how many people are in the building on Sunday, then we might have a number of really large churches, but we won't have people who know how to be the church the other six days. And finally, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be in the 21st century, the church of secular political power must die so that a kingdom vision might live. In his book, Unchristian, David Kinnaman talks about the biggest obstacles that exist for the church in relating to a secular world. And he focuses especially on your generation, people 30 and below. They do thousands of interviews, and they ask the question, what are your perceptions? These are people who are not people of faith. These are not people that, that profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And they ask him the question, what is your perception of Christianity and, and what helped you shape that perception. And one of the most significant findings is in the study is that the primary view that outsiders have of Christians is that the main thing that we are interested in is trying to force people to adhere to our values by voting in candidates who will legislate our morality and make it legal, enforceable. And by the way, that's not just true in these days of conservative Christians. It's true of liberal Christians, too. We live, you and I live, in one of the most divisive days that our country has experienced politically since the Civil War. Now, I don't know if you pay attention to politics. I don't know if you care about it. But there are people on both sides of the aisle that have, that have come to believe that if they elect the president that the kingdom will come, or that they are able to oppose him, that, they, that the kingdom will come. And that idea that somehow the kingdom is going to be associated with who we elect politically, and it's going to be ushered in for those reasons, if that's the idea that we have, then I think we have a fundament, 
fundamental un- misunderstanding of what God's kingdom looks like. Remember, we follow a man whose biggest political moment involved riding into town on a donkey before he was crucified seven days later on a cross between two thieves. This is not exactly a winning strategy for political prominence. Jesus was never interested in cultivating secular political power. But what he was incredibly interested in doing is building the kingdom, not from above, but from below, one disciple at a time. And thankfully, even though they didn't recognize him, Jesus stays with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He keeps sharing his vision and his thoughts. And did you catch when it is and what it is that these disciples are doing when when their eyes are opened? What's happening the moment when they are no longer kept from recognizing Jesus, but understand who he is? When they extend hospitality to a stranger. When they break bread together. The disciples' eyes are open and they begin to see. People of Gaston Oaks Baptist Church moved north hoping they were moving to the promised land, but instead of milk and honey, they were looking for the American Christian equivalent, young families, families like them that wanted a church like theirs. They never found them. Instead, they found something different. Immigrants and refugees. That aging congregation thought they were moving north to build their church, but discovered instead they were being asked to build the kingdom. After they'd been there a few years, they began to recognize that most of the people that lived around their church didn't look like them. In the neighborhood surrounding the church, there were hundreds of immigrants from the nation of Burma. They're called the Karen people. The Karen are political refugees who experienced oppression at the hands of the Burmese government. So many of them first went to refugee camps in Thailand before coming to the United States. Interestingly, the Karen are largely Christian, and they trace their Christian heritage all the way back to the work of the very first Baptist missionaries in history, Anna and Adoniram Judson. The Gaston congregation decided that they had a little bit of extra space, so they opened their facility to the Karen who were looking for a place to worship. A few years later, an Hispanic congregation came to join them. Then a group of Africans, many of them refugees from war-torn Congo, who were then followed by some people from Bhutan. Then two more groups of Burmese refugees came, the Zomi and the Chen. Then the vision really began to expand. Decades earlier, the people of Gaston left behind this big, huge, prominent facility and they went to a converted office building that's terribly ugly from the outside it's not exactly the most beautiful building but it was custom made for their current vision in the past few years four nonprofit organizations have moved their offices to gaston including the largest charity health clinic in the metroplex and an organization that teaches refugees english as a second language last fall Baki Graduate University, a training center for pastors in the third world countries, also relocated to Gaston. A few months ago, the people of Gaston Oaks congregation signed their own death warrant. Literally. They gave their building away. They chartered a new nonprofit called the Gaston Christian Center, and in the chartering document it says, this organization exists 
to be a witness for Christ to the diverse peoples of North Dallas from now until Jesus comes. On a Sunday morning, you could walk into the main sanctuary at 10 o'clock and you're still going to find only about 40 or 50 people. And yet all throughout the building, now there are about, on any given Sunday, there are about 800 people speaking 14 different languages. On the day where they signed the the new document, there were almost a thousand people in the sanctuary praising God together. And every Pentecost, multiple times a year, these people get together. There's a youth group that's being born from the ground up of, of refugees and immigrants. It's a dying church. It doesn't get much closer to death than a 99-year-old usher handing out bulletins on a Sunday morning. For a while for reasons that they are kind of sad about now, but they were kept from recognizing the new vision that, that God was giving them. Thankfully, all it took was just a little bit of imagination necessary for God to give them a new vision, crucified, corrected lenses. What about you and your church? The world is changing and the church is dying and we could be scared of that. We could fight it. We could make it all about us and what we want and do everything in our power to keep it from happening. Or we can follow Jesus and die. And that's the invitation. To follow Jesus and die. As long as we remember that when you follow Jesus, death isn't the end of the story. It's just a tool that God uses to usher us into newness of life. God's not missing, but he does look different because death changes things. May God give us the sight to see, the courage to die, and the imagination for the resurrection to come in us again. Amen. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.